0: with the likes of ex-FBI agents, real estate moguls, self-made billionaires, CEOs, and best-selling authors. Our subject matter ranges from enhancing productivity, how to gain influence, the art of entrepreneurship, and more. If you're smart and like to continually improve yourself, hit the subscribe button because you'll love it here at Young and Profiting Podcast. Today on Yap, we're chatting with branding expert, David Acker. Building a strong brand is vital. It's what attracts your customers and keeps them coming back. But with so much competition, sometimes it may seem impossible to stand out and make an impact. So when I decided to release an episode about strengthening your brand to gain market leadership, I knew there was no one better to talk to than the father of modern branding himself, David Acker. David has received several awards for his contributions to the science of marketing, and he is the author of 17 books, including his latest Owning Game Changing Subcategories. David also serves as the vice chairman of Profit, a marketing and branding consulting firm. In this episode of Yap, we'll hear how his Acker brand equity model has helped companies create strategies that increase their brand equity for over 20 years now. We'll gain an understanding as to why the only way to grow your business, with rare exception, is to find and own game-changing subcategories. And lastly, we'll get the 411 scoop on how to build a loyal customer base and create barriers for competition. Now let's get right into my conversation with branding expert, David Acker. Welcome to the show, Dave. Happy to have you on. Good to be here. So you're known as the father of modern branding, and you've written over 17 books on the subject. You're also the vice chairman of Profit, a global growth consultancy. And good branding is crucial to business success. And so I can't wait to break down your branding secrets in this episode, as well as your Acker brand vision model. And also super excited to cover your philosophy on owning game-changing subcategories. So to warm things up, I'd love for you to share how you first got interested in the topic of branding.
1: See, this goes back a long time from now, 30 years or so. But there was a time when everything was coming together in the late 80s. It was this sort of BCG model of strategy, which was the gross share matrix. that just said you try to expand market share, you'll get a cost advantage and you'll win. And that led people to do all sorts of dumb things, like to do price promotions and destroy brands and so on. And I actually did a econometric study. I'm a, I started off as a statistician. I did a, a study that showed that if you increase market share, you in fact don't increase profitabilities. if you analyze the data right. Because what they were doing is, is looking at cross-sectional data, which shows that large market share cut Companies made more money than small ones. But that doesn't mean that if you increase market share, anything good will happen. And then what also happened during that time is the scanner data came out, which meant that for the first time, you could really tell exactly what people bought in the grocery store or the drugstore. And not only that, but you could set up a whole town where you could tap into their television sets and know exactly what they watched. So now you could run experiments that would show, compare zero ads to two ads to four ads, compare this kind of ad to that kind of an ad. And so finally science came to marketing and everybody was so happy because now you could apply science to everything else, now you could apply it to marketing. Well, what happened was that when you did these experiments, the only thing that paid off was uh, sense-out promotions or price promotions. So they taught the consumer two uh, several things. One, it's the only important variable is price. And two, if you know, if it's not on sale today, just wait two weeks, it'll go on sale. And so people were realizing this isn't working. And we've got to go back to basics. We've got to somehow get our brand back. And so the concept of brand equity was then introduced. At the same time, I was I wrote a book and I taught business strategy, and I, and I came to believe that. Companies were too focused on short term financials, and they needed to build assets and I had background in market research. I wrote a book on market research and on advertising and on strategy and so I was sort of well kept, equipped to to focus in on branding That's what I did it was I was really at the right time at the right place. So I wrote my first book on how do you define and understand brand equity and nobody had done that before. And, And I also told not only what it was, but why it was so valuable to not only the firm, but the customer. And I defined Mm -hmm. it as being visibility and awareness and visibility. and, And then brand image was the second dimension. And the third dimension was brand loyalty. And nobody else had defined brand equity that way. They had always excluded brand loyalty. And that changes everything. When you put that in the mix, you know, no longer can brands be run by middle management, by the advertising agency. They're now strategic because it's all tied up with the customer loyalty, which is without question a long-term asset. And so that that was pretty, yeah. You know, anyway, so that hit really at the right time.
0: Yeah, it was revolutionary. I mean, you put out your Acker brand equity model in 1996 and people are still using it today. It's still in textbooks and things like that till this day. So it was very revolutionary. So basically you took everybody out of this mind frame that the only way to increase your brand was to get more market share and to lower prices and things like that. And and you kind of turned it on its head with your new Acker model. So let's talk about that a bit. It's, there's a few different pillars, brand loyalty, brand awareness, perceived quality, brand associations, and proprietary assets. Could you take us through all of these different components in your ACRA model?
1: Well, first of all, my first book, Managing Brand Equity, defined brand equity and showed why it was important. And then people said, "Okay, I'll buy into that. How do I manage it? And I wrote a second book called Building Strong Brands. And that's where the ACRA model appears. It's on on how do you manage brands? And the essence of the ACRA model was that the people that were running brands in those days were ad agencies and lower level marketing managers. And the ad agencies wanted to have a single phrase to represent what the brand stands for because they wanted to create an advertising campaign and that's what they needed. And so a brand was a single thought. And not only that, but they they often, most of the agencies had had a little box, maybe six boxes, eight boxes, seven boxes, And if you wanted a brand strategy, you filled in the box. There'd be a a box for personality, a box for brand attributes, a box for benefits, and so on. And so I basically said two things. One, a brand is not a three-word phrase. A brand is multidimensional. It has eight to 12, seven dimensions. And that's especially true with business-to-business-to-service brands. The second thing I said is there's no predefined boxes because every situation is different and so what you have to do is to is to basically say what do you want your brand to stand for and never mind any prior boxes what are your boxes what makes sense for you and then you take these 10 or 12 things and you prioritize them into a core group and an extended group and that's really the essence of the uh what's sometimes call it as the awkward model.
0: Let's hold that thought and take a quick break with our sponsors. Young and profiters, they may call me the podcast princess, but I'm also the LinkedIn queen. I've been a LinkedIn influencer for six years now, and I teach one of the most popular courses about LinkedIn. And I love to teach sales on LinkedIn because when it comes to B2B sales, LinkedIn has got that on lock. LinkedIn is where all the decision makers are hanging out. I've got a special gift for all you Young and Profiters who want to try LinkedIn ads. You can get a $100 credit. LinkedIn was super generous. If you want to make B2B marketing everything it can be and get a $100 credit on your next campaign, go to linkedin.com slash yap, Y-A-P. Again, if you want to claim your credit, go to linkedin.com slash yap. Terms and conditions apply. Young and Profiters, Yap Media is growing so fast. I have 10 open roles just this month. Again, it's indeed.com slash profiting to get your $75 credit. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Well, I'd love to kind of go through some of these points because I don't think everybody who listens to the podcast is a marketer. And I think it would be really helpful. So for example, let's, I'll I'll tee you off. So uh, brand loyalty, can you explain what brand loyalty is?
1: Yeah. Brand loyalty is really, in essence, what you're buying when you buy a brand, because a brand has a following. It is a, a, a business base generating a, a potential profit flow. And that's what makes it really valuable. It's the, it's the core of it. It's the, uh, the customer loyalty base. And of course, there's levels of them. There's the people that buy you and they don't think much about it, but there's no reason to change there's the people that really like it and the people that are passionate about it and are really involved in your product and it's part of their identity it's part of their lifestyle it's part of part of them it defines them so you want to have as large a group especially near the near the top of that pyramid as you can because that represents a, a terrific barrier to competitors because Uh, You know, you've got the most attractive customers and they, they can't access them or it'd be extremely expensive to do so. And each of those customers have a lifetime value. And that's really what your asset is based on.
0: Okay. And then another component of your Acro model is brand awareness. So what do you think my listeners need to know about that?
1: I've kind of expanded or redefined awareness because I've gotten real interest in what I call brand relevance. And that's tied into the subcategory stuff because it says when you create a, some new innovation, you, make, you win not because you're better. It's because the other people are not relevant. To be relevant requires awareness and credibility or visibility and credibility. So it's not enough just to, to have people know your brand. Your brand can be known and be what's called in the, uh, what I call being in the graveyard means that everybody knows your brand, but they don't even ever think about it when they want to buy or use something. So it requires awareness, but also credibility, which means you're an option. Doesn't mean I'm going to buy you, but you're in my consideration set. That's the first dimension of of brand equity.
0: That's really interesting that you say relevancy, because I think that's really key. There's lots of brands out there. Like I can think of like, Copier brands and things that like everybody knows Xerox, but nobody's buying Xerox. You know because they haven't adapted. So would you say that relevancy is really all about adapting to your customer needs?
1: You lose relevance for a couple of reasons. One is you lose relevance because you're not making what they're buying anymore. You're making a you know an SUV, and they're start they're buying electric cars, and so they could love your SUV. They would never buy another SUV, I mean, another kind of SUV. And, they, they, and anybody that asked you, they would recommend your brand. But they're not buying SUVs. They're buying an electric car. So it doesn't matter how much they like your SUV. So that's one way to lose relevance. Another way to lose relevance is just to lose energy. To have a sort of, you're just, you're bland, you're taken for granted, your grandfather's uh, product. And it's, you're fine, but there's no energy there. There's no reason to think about or talk about your brand. Oh, there's one other way you lose uh, relevance, and that is if you create a reason not to buy. It might be because you had a, a terrific product uh, mistake. You, you make a cola and you had some contaminated water, or maybe you, you, know, you took a, a political view that was unpopular by some people and they created a reason not to buy. So those are the three ways you become less relevant.
0: Yeah, in 2022, they call that being canceled. <laughs> we have a cancel culture. So your brand could, could lose relevancy by being canceled. Yeah, that's, that's so true. Let's talk about perceived quality. So from my understanding, this refers to the public's understanding of your perceived quality of your products and services. What do you think we need to know about that one?
1: Brand image is all the perceptions people have of you. When somebody mentions your name, what comes to mind? That's a brand image. And a brand image can be, you know, an attribute of the offering like perceived quality. And what lies behind perceived quality is a really important factor, which is called trust. But it also can be a personality, it can be values, it can be your uh, willingness to take on social programs, it can be uh, sort of an application and how that links into your lifestyle. So it can be a wide variety of things. But at the end of the day, what you want something that maybe gives self-expressive benefits, it it tells people who you are, or it gives social benefits, it provides a, a link to other people, or it provides emotional benefits, it makes you feel something, and, uh, or it provides functional benefits that ties you to using the brand.
0: Yeah. Okay, cool. So let's move on to your latest book. I think it came out in 2020. It's called Owning Game-Changing Subcategories, Uncommon Growth in the Digital Age. An essential thesis of your book is that the only way to grow your business or or with rare exception, at least, is to find and own a game-changing subcategory. So first of all, let's define what is a game-changing subcategory in your own words?
1: It's an offering that contains some must-haves that's something that customers will insist on. It's either a, uh, a new or an improved offering, or uh, advance to an old offering that uh, it just creates a must-have. You really must have that. So the electric car is certainly a in that category. Prius, when they came out with the first subcom, it wasn't the first contact, incidentally it was the second. Honda was the first, but Prius was the first to get it right. But they went 12 years with no competition. And they had what's a must-have. It was several must-haves, as is usually the case. There was the design of the car. There was the functionality. There was the uh, the all the uh, modifications and improvements they added each year. But anyway, I started off studying beer in Japan. I've been to Japan a lot. And uh, I looked at 30 years of beer data, and only four times did the market share trajectory change, even though there was enormous market spend in each of those years. Four times. And each time there was a new subcategory fi- fi- uh, developed, like a Sahi superdrive. And I looked at two dozen other categories, and that's always the same computers and uh, banks and so on. When you see a, uh, a spurt of growth it's almost always driven by a new subcategory.
0: I'd love to kind of really go deep on this because I I really want my listeners to understand this. And I think the best way would be to go through some examples of businesses dominating their own industries who won this way by having their own game-changing subcategories. So why don't we give some examples? Like how about Airbnb, Etsy, Warby Parker? Do you want to talk about any of those?
1: Yeah, those are all good examples. I mean, Etsy was uh, sort of, I talk in, in the book about how to compete against Amazon, and there's about seven ways to do it. And they all involve creating must-haves that Amazon doesn't have. And uh, Etsy is a classic example. It talks about a passion for craft and making crafts and, and appreciating crafts and using craft built stuff. And that passion, I mean, Amazon has no passion for anything. Amazon is amazing at delivering functional benefits. They can give you a, you know, they sell everything under the earth and and all kinds of models and all sizes, and they'll build you fast, but they have no passion. And so you have Casper that sells mattress, and they're really passionate about sleep. I think Amazon sells mattress. They don't care about sleep. They just want to functionally get you a mattress. That's one of the must-haves that Etsy has is, A real passion and an authentic involvement in that industry that really appeals to people that make crafts and and value crafts.
0: Usually, when people are starting in business and they're interested in gaining market share, they tend to want to be the best in an existing category as opposed to just creating a new category altogether. What do you think is wrong with that thinking?
1: It just doesn't work. There's almost no people that grew their business that way. Almost none. It's really extraordinary. Actually, one of the uh, probably most robust truths in marketing that's been demonstrated by, by dozens and dozens of really good studies is that, you know what the, the predictor of a success of a new product is? You know the single th- most important thing? What's that? How different it is. It, study after study after study rediscovers that having something that's really different is the most thing. Not only does it give it, the potentially give you something that you want to buy, it gives you something that people can talk about too. It gives you visibility. I mean, why would you read an ad about something that says I'm I'm better than you know Gillette Deodor- or something instead of somebody saying I've got something completely different? And so. And there's a definite correlation between being different and creating new must-have defined subcategories.
0: Okay, so having must-haves really represent features or programs that other brands lack. And you also say that brands need parity must-haves to counteract that reasoning that customers have for not buying their products. So there's, there's must-haves and then there's parity must-haves. Can you explain that to us?
1: Well, let's take Dollar Shave Club. They came out with some razors that they sold through e-commerce. They did a four-minute video that you should go on the I encourage you to go on the internet and look at it. It's very funny. It's this feisty underdog dog that's making fun of Gillette making fun of the buying process. You have to go to a lock cabinet and and perhaps get arrested for buying this razor, and then you can't figure out which razor you want. And so They have a system where they'll just send you blades every month and they'll give you a simple razor. They got 18,000 subscribers in two days. They sold their company in four years for a billion dollars to Unilever. Wow. So, But anyway, they had a problem, which Warby Parker had, which Casper Mattress has, is what makes you... This is probably junk. I mean, you're selling at a low price. I can't taste it. I can't feel it. There's no drugstore guy that's going to uh, give me a reassurance that it's good. And that's the problem. How do you reassure people that it is uh, you know, actually a good product? And that's a reason not to buy. So one of the challenges that Dollar Shave Club was, was to convince people it was actually a good product.
0: And now a quick break from our sponsors. And all the products that we love, now we can get cash back. It's like getting a discount on the stuff you're going to buy anyway. It's absolutely amazing. They even have travel brands, so that's going to be super convenient for me with all my upcoming trips, Expedia, Hotels.com. You can get deals on everything from electronics to home goods to travel and beauty. Young and Profiters, you're going to want to grab this limited time deal with both hands. You get high cash back rates for only eight days. So hurry, membership is free and when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to racketon.com or download the Rakuten app at R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Young and profiters, as you may know, I launched my LinkedIn Secrets Masterclass a little bit over a year ago. It was my first course. No excuse these days. If you've got a good business idea and you think you'll be a good entrepreneur, you don't have to wait any longer. You don't have to be super techie and you never have to worry about figuring it out on your own. Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash profiting. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash profiting now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash profiting. Young and profiters, are you dreaming about starting a course? Do you want to go from one-to-one to 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 one-to-many and scale yourself? If you're thinking about starting a course, then you need to hear about Kajabi. Kajabi is the OG of course platforms. I've got creators in my network like Jenna Kutcher and Amy Porterfield who have been using Kajabi for over a decade. These ladies know what they're doing. They are literally the course queens. Go to Kajavi.com slash profiting and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Yeah. So basically they're, they have their must haves, which is like their real differentiators that make them stand out and, and that their customers are kind of obsessed with the fact that there's certain things like you can get it online and it's inexpensive. But the parity must-haves is that it has to be at least the same quality as what they'd get in the drugstore for that higher-priced razor. Is that right? Yeah. Got it. Okay, cool. So how do we go about finding the right subcategory? What is the way that like, a business can explore and create and define their own subcategory?
1: Generally, it comes from one of two general directions. It either comes from the market. Sort of understanding the market and uh, knowing that there's some kind of a need. So mm-hmm. if you're talking to customers and you so on, you you find out what they're doing and the problems they're having. And if maybe they can't enunciate a need, a need, but you know you can probably figure out the need just by hearing what they're what they're doing and groaning about. And that also goes to sort of. Understanding the market in a macro way, looking at not only the, your product class but other product class and looking at, at in general what are they trying to get from using this product so you're not just tied into let's make it a little better situation and the other way is is from your technology your product and you have a new technology we you know one of the the great boons for the new Subcategories, why they're more frequent and more important than ever before is because of technology. There's the Internet of Things, there's artificial intelligence, and all this stuff has has combined to make offerings and subcategories possible that weren't possible very long ago.
0: That's really interesting. So... One of the things that you talk about in your book is that you advise that in order to be successful at this, organizations need to also create barriers for their competition that will inhibit their ability to become relevant options. So what are some of the common barrier strategies that you can name off?
1: Well, more generally, let me take a step back. There are dozens of dozens of of books on disruptive innovation, and there mm-hmm. a lot of them are really good and really innovation we were talking before this. We started about the Blue Ocean book. That's one of them. But there's Christensen's books on disruptive innovation and Porter. And there's really good people doing great stuff. And this has been extremely influential. But if you look at all those books, including Blue Ocean, they do two things. One, they always talk about categories and how often can you create a new category? Not very often, but you can create subcategories quite often. So subcategories is actually more relevant. But more important, you look at all those books, they don't mention branding. They just don't mention branding. You look in the index under B, they don't mention branding. It's as if disruptive innovation can come and take over a marketplace without branding. In my research, and my belief is that branding is, is so important in disruptive innovation. You have to do four things to be successful. One, you have to create yourself as an exemplar brand, a brand that represents the subcategory. Second, you've got to position the subcategory. You've got, like you position a brand, you've got to position the subcategory. You've got to tell people what kind of dimensions should they be thinking about when they think about sort of some use experience or some buying experience. What really are they after? And you've got to keep that in mind. And the third thing is that. You got to scale. You got to scale really fast because you got to own that market. And if you don't scale fast, somebody will come in. The fourth thing you have to do is to create barriers. And one of them is just, you know, you own the best customers because you've scaled so fast. That's a barrier. The positioning creates a barrier because you position the subcategory in a certain way that's going to be sort of easier for you. To fulfill because you own the Prius design, or you own the hybrid you know uh t- transmission of toyota or or something so so anyway those those are some of the barriers that you can create, and they're oh yeah, and another one you can continuously innovate and just be a moving target, but anyway, those barriers are brand barriers, all those things require branding, and it's to me. It's puzzling and unconscionable that all those books virtually ignore branding.
0: Yeah, it's so true. They do ignore branding. I just I just interviewed Gabber Burt on blue ocean strategy and I don't think we talked about branding in that conversation. We talked about lots of great stuff, but to your point, don't really talk about branding. So, let's talk about the digital revolution. How has this made the subcategory growth that you talk about more wider, shorter and frequently traveled? How did the digital age really change all this or, or how did it impact it? First of
1: all, the, the whole idea of disruptive innovation and new subcategories have been around forever. And it's, they're always the force behind spurts of growth. But it's really quite amazing. The last 10 or 20 years, the incidence of these have, have multiplied maybe by an order of magnitude. As I said it's it's all this technology the internet of things for example have permitted amazing new categories to develop that weren't that didn't exist before because now you can embed these chips in in cars and clothing and people and and you can do so many things you couldn't do before you can do the same things you did before but so much better and then there's artificial intelligence and the ability to have a, uh, a more pleasant interaction with, a, you know, with some voice from the sky that's not frustrating. And somebody that can do that first and do it better and do it well is, might have a must-have in some category. And then, of course, the high-speed internet and all that surrounds it. Have, uh, and then e-commerce. Of course, we just didn't have e-commerce not too long ago. And, mm-hmm. and we didn't have social media. So now you can, it used to take nine months and an ad agency and $20 million to introduce a new subcategory, and it would take three years to force yourself into retail stores that weren't interested in carrying your stuff. But now in in two days, Dollar Shave Club was in the marketplace.
0: Yeah, it's so true. Like the easiest way to create a subcategory is just take something that's brick and mortar and put it online, and then you have a subcategory, right? (laughs) Yeah. All right. So, my last question before we wrap this up is really talking about higher purpose. You say that more and more organizations are elevating a higher purpose that's driven by things like environmental or social programs. Can you explain why having a higher purpose is becoming more important than ever?
1: Yeah, that's the subject of my book I've just finished, and it'll be out in the fall. It's um, there's five reasons. First of all, there's been a battle between the sort of Milton Friedman view of the world that that all you have to do is satisfy shareholders and you're successful. And that's increasingly uh, lost favor in in favor. You have to worry about all stakeholders, including the community and uh, society needs and the planet. Second of all, there's these problems that we have, especially the problems associated with global warming and environmental pollution and the issues around inequality are so now pronounced, they're so scary, they're so visible, they're so sort of in your face that people are really petrified and motivated to do something. The third thing is that firms are well-suited to help. I mean, they can't do it all by themselves, there's gotta be a government involved, but they're well-suited to help. The Firms, unlike the government, are very agile. They're often uh, tuned to the local needs and local partners. They're part of the local community. Even global firms have, have offices everywhere. And they have these incredible skills and assets. They know how to do stuff that might be relevant. And if, if they don't know how to do stuff, they know how to communicate stuff that can be part of, the, part of the solution. And they have a lot of resources. And they have a lot of customers they can leverage. And they have a lot of relationships they can leverage. So they're really well-suited to help. Another factor is that a lot of firms sort of need a little lift. They need an energy lift. They need an image lift. They're boring. They're bland. They're functional. Their purpose is is not exciting. It's not inspiring. It's not uplifting. Some of this is just what they make. But others is kind of their perceived attitude. They can benefit from or it or maybe desperately need the kind of burst of energy and the kind of image lift that associations with a program can mean. And one of my beliefs is that it's not just to do stuff. You've got to have a signature program or programs that are focused, that are branded, that are managed to have real impact and that become visible. And because uh, most programs have sort of ad hoc grants, they have volunteering, they have energy reduction goals, but they're like everybody else, they don't stand out. People don't view them as people that are committed or firms that are committed.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting, you know, I interview like two people a week and it seems like every year there's like a new theme that everyone's kind of talking about. And this year, almost every interview I have brings up this idea of business purpose, conscious business, conscious leadership, you know, having something aside from profits as your business goal, impacting the environment or society in a positive way. And that's like a huge theme this year across all of my interviews. So it's just so interesting how almost everybody I speak to has some layer of this in their perspective.
1: There was one fifth dimension I didn't mention, and that is employees really insist on it. And so do investors and consumers and others, but, but employees really. This is, employer, employees choose firms and they choose to stay with firms because of a feeling that this Firm has some heart and social responsibility.
0: Yeah, it's no longer just about that paycheck. It's about how am I impacting the world, and do I feel fulfilled? And if so, then I'll stay. If not, I'll go become an entrepreneur, or I'll go do my own thing, or a, you know, a freelancer, whatever it is. So, I think that's all really important points. So, let's wrap this up with two questions that I ask all my guests. The first one is, what is one actionable thing that my listeners can do today to become more profitable tomorrow?
1: Well, I think that uh, that there's really important to be have meaning in your life out of purpose in your life. And I think that you have to take kind of take stock and ask yourself whether you have meaning and if not, how, you, how can you get it and what direction will give you satisfaction in a sense that what you're doing is worthwhile.
0: And what is your secret to profiting in life?
1: Well, I've been really fortunate. i I've. I've. Um, I've fallen into this branding thing and I've been at it now for three decades. And so I've been really lucky that I I really love what I do. And there's so much vitality and interest and, and so forth in the in the subject matter that I don't get tired of it. And so if anybody can stumble onto something like that, then I think they're very lucky. But I have a friend that talks about His advice and which I think has some merit is you shouldn't do what you like to do or what you wanna do. Instead, you should do what you're good at and what people value. And if you do what you're good at and what people value, you'll probably end up liking it. But even if you don't, you're gonna have a lot of options.
0: Yeah, I love that advice. Dave, where can everybody go learn about you and everything that you do?
1: Well the Profit.com, P-R-O-P-H-E-T, has uh, my website. and You can also get there by davidocker.com, my blog. But most of what I know and so on are in my books. So uh, if my kind of role is to look at different problem areas and to put a, bl- a branding lens on it, like mm-hmm. I did with Disruptive Innovation and with higher purpose programs, and, uh, which I've done in other areas.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dave.
1: Oh, thanks for having me.
0: Great conversation. Well, there you go, Yap Fam. Another episode in the books with the legendary expert, this time around the father of modern branding, David Acker. Before we say goodbye, I did want to spend some time on some key ideas. There's two that I specifically want to touch on. That's brand equity and game-changing subcategories. So let's start with brand equity. This is the perceived value of your brand in the market. And this is a pretty new idea in business, surprisingly. It gained traction first in the late 80s. And David was a pioneer in this space and his tools like the Acker brand equity model are still used today over 20 years later. To build brand equity, a company must first start building brand awareness to achieve brand recognition. Then they deliver a high quality product and then they create a positive experience for the customer to establish brand preference. With strong brand equity, a business has an easier time retaining customers, charging a premium for products, and also launching new products. So let's dig into this a little bit. Let's talk about loyalty first. When customers like your brand, they are loyal. That means repeat business and making sales without having to constantly convince new customers to buy your products or without having to spend thousands on advertising. After all, young and profiters, it costs five times more to acquire a new customer than it does to retain an existing one. So you always want to try to retain your customers and have a loyal customer base rather than churn and having them churn one after another and having to always get new customers. And remember, it theoretically costs the same amount for businesses with and without brand equity to bring a product to market. But a business with brand equity can charge much more for the same products and gain higher profit margins. So let's take a real example that we all know about to kind of put this into practice and make it stick, so to speak. Let's use Tylenol since it has incredible brand equity. So a study at the University of Chicago showed that even though Tylenol is physically homogeneous, meaning identical with generic brands, of acetaminophen, consumers without any expert knowledge end up choosing Tylenol almost 30% more than its less expensive generic counterpart. That means people are choosing Tylenol even though it's the exact same of something cheaper. And that's the power of brand equity. Brand equity is also super valuable for product launches as well. A business with brand equity has a much easier time expanding its product line than a business without brand equity because people are more likely to purchase an unfamiliar product from a familiar brand. So let's take Tylenol again. They've launched many successful products under the Tylenol brand like Tylenol Extra Strength and Tylenol Cold and Flu. Companies with brand equity like Tylenol will sell their products under a single brand name, while companies without brand equity will sell their products under multiple brand names. This is because once a company has established brand equity, the success of one branded product can translate to other products under that same brand name. And so companies will often put out multiple brand names until one sticks and gains brand equity, and then they'll launch multiple products under that brand name. The moral of the story, Young and Profiters, is that if you prioritize shaping how customers think and feel about your brand, you're gonna set your business up for long-term success. Okay, so we've got brand equity down. Now let's dig into the subcategory concept for a little bit. You guys know that I'm a real marketing nerd, so apologies if this outro is a little longer than usual. I just wanted to give you guys some concrete examples and make sure that the main takeaways really stick for you. Traditional views of disruptive innovation say that you need to invent a whole new subcategory to be successful. But David argues that massive growth occurs more often these days by creating something new within an existing category. And this has to do as much with innovative branding strategies as it has to do with innovative products within an existing category. Let's use Chobani this time as the example. Chobani won yogurt and gained market share from Yoplate and Dannon by marketing Greek varieties as healthier than the thin sugary competition. Chobani essentially created the Greek subcategory of yogurt. Instead of a my brand is better than your brand approach based on marginal improvements or being the cheaper option, Chobani entered the market with multiple new benefits. This is what David refers to as must-haves. For Chobani, their must-haves were that it was thicker and creamier than traditional yogurt. It was more filling. They had the same calories as other yogurts, but twice as much protein and half the carbs and sugar. It appealed to people with high-protein diets and those who were trying to lose weight. They also created a new package design their cup was shorter and fatter and that provided a symbol of a new subcategory that helped customers recognize which option was greek on the supermarket shelves so take a page from the chobani playbook yap yeah, bam. develop offerings that are so innovative that they create subcategories making competitors irrelevant because they lack a must-have feature or benefit that's all for now, Young and Profiters. If you wanna learn more about this and read more examples, I highly recommend you go grab David's game-changing subcategory book. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Young and Profiting Podcast. If you guys learned anything from this episode, give your feedback. Drop us a five-star review on Apple or your favorite podcast platform. We're actually getting a ton of Apple reviews lately. They're so much fun. I'm actually gonna go hop on over to check out my reviews and give a couple of you guys a shout out here, especially if you're listening all the way to the end. You're probably some of my most diehard listeners, the type of listeners that drop us an Apple podcast review. And we've been getting so many lately. I think I get like 10 a day these days, which is a lot for a podcast. You know, it's it's it takes a lot for people to actually write a review. It means they really love your show. Let's start off with some recent reviews. So this one is from Kevin Walsh. Wascom from the United States of America. And he says, it's like a free MBA. Amazing content from top-level business leaders giving insights that can take you to the next level in management of people and business in general. Thank you so much, Kevin, for your awesome five-star Apple podcast review. I am fiercer from the United States says, expert questions for experts. Hala dives deep into the expert lines of work and you really get great information from each podcast. I feel like I'm learning something new every day from her content. I just listened to number 186, your customers. Love Your Customers with Fred Reicheld yesterday. And I enjoyed the idea of creating entrepreneurship within a company. Using your ability to innovate new ideas and approaches, it's what can push the company much further into the future. I loved that episode. Love Your Customers with Fred Reicheld. He created the MPS survey. I agree. Amazing episode. Thank you so much. I am fiercer for your amazing review. And thank you for listening to this podcast. And thank you to my YAP team. I couldn't do this without you guys. Love you so much. This is your host, the podcast princess herself, Halataha, signing off.